are back with round two of Storytime with Sophie, and you will notice that we are revisiting J.K. Rowling. This is because Annie is currently reading Harry Potter, although she's already seen the movies before, and so she wanted me to do my next Storytime on this incredible series, which is seven books long, so I'm going to try to summarize all of the thoughts from all seven books into one single episode, but it would be a very worthwhile thing to explore each book individually. And so obviously you should be going forth right now and reading all of these books because they are incredible. I personally, Harry Potter is very near and dear to my heart. It is the first book that I remember reading on my own in first grade. And so there's just always something special I feel like about that. Um, formed a lot of my childhood memories and it's just been a book that I've returned to again and again when I moved to Georgia then many years later when I went away to college it's just sort of been this place that I've returned to again and again when I have felt homeless it's always within those pages I've sort of found a home and you know revisiting Hogwarts with Harry and Ron and Hermione just it feels like home and they feel like friends in those times and moments where maybe you feel friendless in different periods of your life and so I'm sure lots of people have had that experience or other similar experiences with Harry Potter and it's just that enough is isn't enough to make the story fantastic is that it just really brings this sense of home and friendship and I mean, it as a as a child it instilled in me all of these really deep notions of the importance of friendship and courage and bravery and books, but the fact that books aren't just enough and knowledge is not just enough. And even Hermione says, like, there are more important things than books and cleverness. And so that really stuck out to me, who's probably someone that would automatically prioritize books and cleverness over other things. But it also instilled this sense of hope and sacrifice and all of these just wonderful, incredible things. And there is so much that I could say about these books. And there's so much I will say, but there's just, oh my goodness, there's so many fun things like the Latin roots of so many different, all the spells and different names and that sort of thing. That was really fun for me because I had to study Latin growing up. And so... It's just cool, you know, when you get to see those little things. But that's that's a really neat thing to look into more if you don't know Latin. Also, just the way in which J.K. Rowling follows just this British tradition of writing and the same sort of sense of, like, Shakespeare does a lot of things that he does um, when, when it comes to alchemy especially. It was just super cool how she's following this incredible tradition that includes some of the greatest authors the world has ever seen. Um, and, and I mentioned, just mentioned alchemy, but that is a huge thing you probably, there's a good chance you don't know what it is. It um, was, I don't know if it was most popular in the, in the Middle Ages, but it, I, I want to say it originated in, in Egypt a very long time ago. And there's lots about alchemy of sort of being the search to turn these metals into gold and to find, to create the Philosopher's Stone, which probably sounds familiar to you, although the American version changed it to Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone because the publisher said that we Americans would not read something with philosopher in it and I just think that's really sad but philosopher's stone is an alchemical term and so this whole notion of alchemy and more of the mystical spiritual side of it forms a lot of the backbone of J.K. Rowling's writing it's kind of a literary tradition there's like literary alchemy and it's really cool but really in-depth so I won't go into it, but I recommend you check out any of John Granger's books on 
Harry Potter. He's like the Harry Potter scholar, I, I want to say, and he's written so many different things, which has formed a lot of my thoughts, and probably they, I'm sure they sink out or come through, I don't know what terminology I'm trying to bleed through, they bleed through the thoughts that I'll be sharing today. They definitely, I'm sure, have been formed much by, by John Granger. So, those are just some interesting things that I think is fun to explore more. But with all of that being said, we will jump in into just the beauty and wonder of Harry Potter. I guess I should give an overview of the story, right? So in the first book, we open on Harry. He's a baby at the very beginning. He's been orphaned. His parents have been killed by the evil wizard Voldemort. And then we follow Harry as he gets accepted into Hogwarts when he's 11. And then we have this journey of him going through... Uh, school and it's sort of like a like a coming-of-age story in that sense and He battles Voldemort in all of these different ways until we get to the final end It's really a classic in that sense good versus evil story But I don't want to go into too many details because it's just impossible to go into too many details because it is seven books long And so I'll leave it at that You're probably at least somewhat familiar with the story and as we talk about each of these different themes I'll pull out different parts of the the story that really relates to these themes. So I think if if I was going to narrow down the overarching question of the entire series, this is what it seems like of the question is how do we deal with death? And that is what JK Rowling is just struggling with and working through throughout the entire series in every single book. And there's this really cool quote that comes from, there's this book called Shakespeare's Window into the Soul by Martin Lings, I want to say, and he's talking about all these things that we can glean and learn from Shakespeare and how he argues that Shakespeare's work should be considered a sacred art. And he, when he's talking about kind of what Shakespeare is doing in every single one of his plays, he takes a quote from Hamlet and basically boils it down to saying this, where all that matters is to be ready for death when its moment comes. And that's sort of the goal of each of these Shakespeare plays, is to get the main characters to that point where they're ready for death when its moment comes. And so I think that is what J.K. Rowling is doing. We see the good characters ultimately being willing to meet death when it comes, to welcome death as an old friend, to see death as a next great adventure, right? Dumbledore kind of, he talks about that, and the good people are always marked by this willingness to die, this willingness to sacrifice their lives for the people that they love and care about, for this cause and battle of goodness. And it's not this abstract notion of goodness, right? It's this goodness grounded within friendships and family and love. And so in the battle between good and evil, the good guys versus the bad guys, they react to death differently. They treat death differently. They approach death differently. And that, perhaps above anything else, is what differentiates each single person as whether whether they're good or whether they're evil. So, so those are the good guys, right? They're marked by sacrifice. They refuse to kill. They kind of meet death as an old friend. They just fade away into it. They welcome it. They see it as the next adventure. On the other hand, we have the bad guys. So all of the evil guys, they're marked by this notion that trying to control death. I mean, you think about it, Voldemort's gang is called, they're called the Death Eaters. Their, their goal is to eat death, to, to put an end to death, to just, to live forever, to control it, to somehow grasp hold of it and extend their life 
forever and ever and ever. And that, I mean, that is exactly what Voldemort's doing. Voldemort's doing. He kills Harry's parents and tries to kill Harry because it's been prophesied that there's going to be this little boy who's going to defeat him. And so he wants to put an end to that because he doesn't want to be defeated. He wants to live forever. You learn more about his... Oh, before we get to that. So then you have the first book, The Philosopher's Stone. And he's trying to get a hold of the Philosopher's Stone, which can create the elixir of life. So that can make your life continue on and on forever and ever and ever. But but even Dumbledore sort of makes the point that it's not exactly this full, rich life. So, so there's still something that seems to be wrong with that. Or even in that same book, before he gets to the Philosopher's Stone, Voldemort drinks unicorn blood. And so... It points out like unicorns are these pure creatures and if you drink their blood you can survive but it's really just sort of a half-life he's not fully and truly living so he's trying to avoid death there the chamber of secrets he tries to really come back to life by sucking the life out of jenny to give his old diary self like corporal form and so again trying to defeat death and you see it over and over and over and over again and when you get to the sixth book and you learn about his past and his history all of what Voldemort has done is revolved around this complex notion of this horcrux. And so a horcrux is this object where he can store a bit of his soul. But the only way that he can create this horcrux is by killing somebody else. And this is extremely, extremely dark stuff, right? And, that, and that's how Rowling treats it. She doesn't treat this as something that is, you know, to be praised or something that is just okay or even neutral. She's from the outset, this is wicked, this is evil, this is wrong. So this is the worst kind of magic possible. And so, so you see him doing this and he's killed countless people and he's created all of these horcruxes. And that's why so far he hasn't been able to truly be killed. But it's hard to say that he's really living even though he regains bodily form at the end of the fourth book and so he's trying to defeat death that way and then he also in the final book we learn about these the deathly hollows right which are these these three magical items the elder wand which is the most powerful wand you can kill anybody with it like you're always going to defeat the person that you're up against when you have the elder wand the invisibility cloak so that you can in fact sort of hide from death although we learn that the brother who requested the invisibility cloak from death, this is this whole fairy tale that Jacob Rowling has written into this world, and he eventually took off the invisibility cloak and meted death as an old friend. And so he, in that sense, he, he represents one of the good guys. So you've got the Elder One, the invisibility cloak, and the resurrection stone, which can sort of bring people back from the dead, but they're kind of just these ghostly, misty creatures. They're not real people. They don't belong in the land of the living. And so Voldemort is trying to get those three things as well because then supposedly if you have all three things that makes you the master of death so this is just i mean this is just a theme that runs through the entire thing of how are you going to treat death are you going to try to become master of death or are you going to surrender yourself and be willing to sacrifice your life and you'll even see this what i think is really cool is also in the seventh book harry and um hermione they go to godric's hollow where harry was born and they come across Lily and James's parents, their grave, and it has a scripture verse on it that says the last enemy to be defeated is death. And Harry gets really mad because he's like, that sounds like something the Death Eaters would say. And I just, I think it's cool because really, Rowling isn't arguing that death is a good thing. I think she recognizes that death is unnatural. And you just see her grappling with this. Like, if, if you think of the Dementors and how they just bring up 
all of the, they're like grief personified and they just suck the life out of you and so there's there's so much that she sees in the wrongness of death and we see all the pain that harry has suffered from the death of his parents and so she she's not even she's not saying that we should accept death in the sense of this is just mandated by fate this is just all part of it woohoo go death but more of more of i think really what she's arguing is that death one day will be defeated but it's not going to be defeated by the power of trying to control it we're not the ones who defeat death and we see ultimately that death is defeated when people are willing to sacrifice themselves for others because you have in the deathly hollows harry goes and he sacrifices himself and he gets hit right with the killing curse and he dies in a way it's sort of a confusing scene but but i think really what we're supposed to intake is that harry dies for his friends for the people that he loves and when he has that sacrificial death he comes back to life and, and you have this moment where he's with dumbledore and it's like he could sort of go on or he could come back right there's there's more she seems to have some sort of afterlife built into it of some some way but death ultimately is defeated by sacrifice not through this power and might and so i think that is really cool and it's just cool that she had that she brought that verse into there with lillian james grave it's kind of a small moment but i think it's really important right that the question really is how is death going to how do we interact with death how do we come to terms with death but ultimately how is death going to be defeated because we all recognize death as an evil thing the question is how are we going to go about dealing with it and so i just i think that's really cool and you you kind of see death sacrificial death sort of tail ending the series because the begins with the death of lillian james although that's technically right right before you actually you technically open with the dursleys but the story begins with their sacrificial death and then the story ends besides like the you know the final denouement but it ends with harry's sacrificial death and so it, it is sacrificial death is really just this overarching central current and theme throughout the entire series and in each book and i want to say john granger pointed this out and my mind was just kind of blown when i read it harry has this sort of death every single book he always goes down into the ground for the final battle and then he comes up out of the ground and so you you have this this idea of death and resurrection going throughout every single book and then really being brought to fruition in the end in the deathly hollows another just fun small thing you have fox of phoenix so the phoenix kind of becomes a prominent symbol throughout the series and phoenix has sort of always been this this symbol of death and resurrection because in in mythology the phoenix flares up in fire disintegrates into ashes and then is reborn again as a new little baby phoenix and so that has there's a lot of in pagan mythology and then christians sort of brought in to become an image of christ and his death and resurrection so that's just a cool symbol that has existed for a really long time and i think rowling uses it well and that's really cool so you've got this you've got this this thing of dealing with death which I mean, talk about a more relevant question for humans. We're all asking ourselves, how do we deal with death? Because death is inevitable for all of us. And so are we going to try to just fight really hard and grasp onto life and just try to control and have mastery over death like Voldemort and the Death Eaters? Or are we going to surrender ourselves and sacrifice ourselves and choose love and ultimately see the final defeat of death through resurrection and redemption?
And so that alone, I mean, oh my goodness, what just, what depth and beauty is in this simple story, or that, hard to call it simple, it's pretty complex, just this wonderful story. So I think that is perhaps, as one of the biggest things, um, there's another, a couple other big things, but before we get into those bigger things, I just want to pause and talk about this, just this cool thing of, of this notion of, the notion of actions, and throughout the whole story, right, there is a prophecy, but the prophecy isn't, it isn't in this story as if it is fate uh, that is mandated and unavoidable. Really, every big moment, everything throughout the story hinges on choosing to do what is right. And even Dumbledore says, and this is just paraphrasing, he's like, it's not our abilities that make us who we are, but it is our choices. It is our choices that define us. So we aren't ruled or governed by some sort of gifting that we have or, uh, again, a mandated notion of fate that we're controlled um, by destiny or that sort of thing. But it is the fact that we choose to do what is right. And especially throughout the entire series, right, we see the good guys choosing to do what is right when it is hard, right? We see Neville who stands up and he's up, he's lauded for having courage to stand up to his friends because it seems either they're breaking the rules or doing what is wrong. Uh, we, we see, and so we see in little ways and we see in big ways, people choosing to do the right thing, choosing good, choosing courage, choosing sacrifice. There's nothing super exemplary about these characters. I mean, they're children. Harry is certainly not the best of the wizards or the witches at the school, you know, he's just sort of average in many regards and not a great student, but it's because he just chooses to continue putting one foot forward after the other because he can t chooses to do what is right. He chooses to take up his duty and to fight for his friends, to fight for Hogwarts, to fight for this beautiful, good world. That is what brings about this final end. That's what brings about the salvation of these people is the choice to do what is right. And I just, I, again, what, what a powerful thing to see played out and to really take into ourselves of that it is our choices and our decisions that determine who we are in that instance, right? It's not this fate upon us or our abilities that we just naturally have that define us, but is it our, our decision to pursue what is good, what is right, what is wise, these sorts of things that define the kind of person who we are. And more than that, bigger than that, I think this is the answer in a sense to the overarching question of how do we deal with death. Her answer, the other overarching theme throughout all the books is love. It's love and it is just mind-blowing the extent to which this simple thing, and it is a powerful, it is a powerful version of love. It's not some ooey-gooey, mushy love. It's not some sugar-coated love. It's not, oh, let's just love one another, blah, blah, blah. It is powerful, sacrificial, chosen love that shapes the story of Harry Potter. So again, right, we see the, the books, the series bookended by sacrificial deaths that are motivated out of love. Lily and James, especially Lily sacrifice, right? They die for Harry because they love him. And really them standing in the way of Voldemort for all they know is not going to accomplish anything, right? They're slowing him down for 20 seconds. But because they love Harry, they're willing to do it. Instead of running for their lives, instead of doing anything else, they're going to stand in front and die because they love him. 
And that's what Harry does at the end because he loves his friends and he loves Hogwarts. He loves all of these people. He makes a decision to walk alone through the woods to then face all the jeers and taunts of the Death Eaters, to stand there and to, to die, <laughs> to face the full fury and wrath and evilness of Voldemort. And so, so we see love, this consistent theme. I, we see it in the whole story of Snape. You know, Snape is sort of ultimately, he's redeemed throughout the whole story by his, his love for Lily. And it's, it's a whole interesting, like, extra narrative going on there, right? But it, it's love that shapes it. And it's, what's really cool to me is that love takes on this physical protection. So, in the first few books before Voldemort does this super evil spell thing, potion concoction in the fourth book when he regains his body, before that happens, he cannot touch Harry. He can't. That's what happens in the Philosopher's Stone, right? He tries to touch Harry and um, Quirrell tries to touch Harry and he has Voldemort on the back of his head and Quirrell dies because Harry has been marked by Lily's love for him. When she died, that put a literal protection over him. He was protected from evil by love. And I don't know, when, when I just read that, it is just astoundingly insightful and such a beautiful way to demonstrate the truth of the world through this actual physical protection that Rowling weaves into the fabric of her own universe that she's created. And I think that is incredible. And I, I want to say Dumbledore refers to it as a deeper magic. It, it is a magic that Voldemort, he knows nothing of. And he, he ultimately recognizes it himself. And he considers it to be some trickery that she pulled. And like, aha, that's why I was defeated. But this, this man who's so bent on defeating death and seeking power. This man who was also, go back to the central love, he was conceived under a love potion. So he has never really known love because his own parents didn't love each other, right? That was just fabricated. And so his whole life, Voldemort has never really known love, and that's partially his own fault. Um, but you have that contrast of, of his upbringing and his childhood, and he was an orphan too, versus Harry, whose parents did love each other, and they loved him, and they sacrificed themselves for him, and that gave him that protection that Voldemort couldn't possibly understand. And you have this notion of the, the villains being unable to comprehend what love is all the way through until the end, right? I'm sure, I, I think at some point, some one of the main <laughs> good characters says, like, we have something that they will never be able to comprehend. They'll never be able to get their minds around. We have love for each other. We have friendship. And I think that is ultimately, it's that love that sort of brings the Malfoys to a final bit of redemption you know they're, they're very wishy-washy non-committal people but i think we see hope for them in the end at least you know narcissa and draco because they at least they love one another <laughs> within their family even if they don't have love for other people outside of their little family and even if their love within their family is a little messed up it is something more than voldemort and what voldemort has and so and i love too the notion of this love being a deeper magic that Voldemort can't understand because he's, I mean, Horcruxes are complex magic. You would think that is deep, quote, air quotes, deep magic. But Dumbledore's like, no, the, you know, there's a magic that is deeper and deeper than that, and it is love. And, and if you think about love being the deepest magic at all, I, I, to me, it just sort of pulls apart this notion of Harry Potter being wrong to read or evil to read because it, there's magic in it. I think that's a very 
it's just a misunderstanding of what kind of magic we're talking about, of what's really going on in this story. And the fact that it is love, it's not spells, it's not extra power that can somehow change um, or, or save the world. You know, because if you look too, especially at the sort of magic or sorcery that scripture specifically is addressing and all these things and where we see maybe modern day witchcraft and, and Wicca and that kind of stuff, what is their goal with this notion of magic it's to wield power it's to take power and to be able to do things that are unnatural in that sense that we can't just normally do but if you are wielding this magic then you have power over nature you have power over these things but that is exactly the opposite of what Rowling is arguing for right she's saying that true magic is selfless and sacrificial it is not a grasp after power that's false magic that's dark magic that's black magic whatever you want to call it that is the bad stuff true magic is love it's sacrifice. That's what it is. And that is, I mean, it reminds me of Narnia, right? With the stone table and as in like there's this deeper magic of someone sacrificing their lives for the guilty party and all of this sort of thing. And so I, I just, I don't know, it's just fantastic to me, right? Love is the most powerful thing in the universe, in, in J.K. Rowling's universe. And that is incredible. And it is a deep, rich, love. You know, a lot of people say that Harry Potter is good because it really argues for this notion of tolerance or it's against prejudice. And it's true, it is against prejudice. And I think that is an important theme. And especially, I mean, J.K. Rowling is a postmodern writer. And so that's something that she's going to struggle with and grapple with and, and look at and find important and deal with. And there's a lot of that that goes on with the prejudice, you know, for Muggleborns, so whose parents are non-magical and J.K. calling them mudbloods and this sort of thing. And I think it's just a great job bringing reconciliation to all of these things, and I'll talk about that a bit more later. But what I think is the beauty in this is that it's not a simple tolerance or a simple overcoming of prejudice. It is a deep-rooted, sacrificial love that fights and is it's just incredible. It's so much deeper and richer than just that very surface-level reading of, of anti-prejudice. Um, but the, the denial of prejudice is is brought out of a deeper understanding of love, a very Christian understanding of love, which is just super cool. So we see all of that, and of course that leads to this notion of sacrifice, which I've really already said over and over again, of course. We've got the sacrifice of Lily and James, we've got the sacrifice of Sirius, sort of. I mean, it's not like he, in the moment, sacrifices his life, but he's willing to put his life on the line to protect Harry. We see the sacrifice of Dumbledore, who's willing to take this poison and willing to sacrifice his um his life to protect really kind of draco to keep draco from having to kill somebody and um dumbledore does that with the help of snape and harry sacrifice and ultimately evil right is defeated by sacrifice evil is defeated by sacrifice and death is defeated by sacrifice which uh, again chef's kiss beautiful incredible so so deeply honest and true and beautiful and good and then, of course, really, to me, right, the ultimate thing, what makes this such a beautiful story that I think resonates with the hearts of so many people is that it reflects truth. And you've probably already seen this coming because I've really been saying most of what I'm about to say, about to say right here, right? But it reflects the truth that, that love is the deep magic of the universe, right? Our universe is born out of love. There was always the Trinity, right? God is a Trinity. He's relational. That is, he's defined by that relationship of love. And he created us and the world as a gift. 
you know, out of love, just overflowing, abounding love. And so from the very beginning, our world, our, the story of our world is defined by love. It's written into the fabric of our universe. And it is the love of God who decided to take on human flesh, right? Be born as a baby, grow up, suffer, die, sacrifice himself, and then resurrect. It's always been about this deep, incredible, powerful love. And, and so Harry Potter reflects that truth. It reflects the truth that we are saved through sacrifice and that death is defeated through sacrifice, not by a search after power, not by trying to grasp onto these things, but by a willing sacrifice for the sake of others. It all hinges, the story of Harry Potter all hinges on a death and resurrection, a miniature, a miniature death and resurrection in each book and the ultimate death and resurrection in the Deathly Hallows which of course mimics our own story that hinges on the death and resurrection of Jesus. Again, it's also just like our own story. It's a eucatastrophe, which is just, I just love that word. What a fun word. Um, Harry Potter gets really, really dark and it looks like the good guys are going to lose and a lot of good guys die, right? JK Rowling really likes to kill off her characters and it's really sad and heartbreaking and heart-wrenching, but there are so many moments where you just think, there is no way that Harry and the gang can win. Darkness is going to triumph. This is just scary and it's hard and it's rough, but the light always triumphs. There is great and deep darkness, but ultimately good is victorious. And is that not the story of our world? Sometimes it looks so dark and so scary and so hopeless, but God is the God of you catastrophe. He turns that sorrow into joy. He brings salvation and he brings redemption. And there is always, he always has the victory. Good always triumphs over evil in the end. And so in that same vein, right, we see that wrong is righted. Evil is destroyed. Even more specifically, we see this very proverbial theme of evil destroying itself. Right? Because Voldemort goes around making all of these horcruxes and because he doesn't understand the deeper magic, he ends up causing his own demise by turning Harry himself into a horcrux. He doesn't understand all of these things that are happening and as he seeks after power, more so and more so, he ends up bringing about his own destruction and defeat and death. In that moment when he thinks he has the victory by killing Harry, he has really just destroyed his final horcrux and at last allowed himself to be killed, which is just beautiful justice. You see that there's justice woven into the story of Harry Potter. We see the villains bringing about their own demise because there's some sort of author, J.K. Rowling, who has determined that good will win, that evil will be defeated. That, I think, is incredible. And then again, too, that along, again, that same line, evil really is folly. Right? Voldemort is a fool. And when you read the story, you can tell that he's a fool. And it's a little bit tragic, but I don't, I think she does a good job giving his backstory in the sixth book where you don't, he, you already know all the evil that he's done that you don't really, that you feel a little bad for him, but you don't feel sympathetic to the degree where you start getting confused of is he really good or is he really evil? He's so obviously clearly evil. And, and he's a fool. He's a fool that he thinks that he can defeat death by his own power. He's a fool for not understanding how love works, that it can protect people or that people would be willing to sacrifice their lives for others, that in fact all of Hogwarts in the, in the final battle is willing to put their lives on the line to protect Harry instead of turning him over. 
every step of the way, he is fooled by the fact that the good guys choose life over death and sacrifice over power. And of course, like I said before, good is a choice. So that I think, those are the big themes, the powerful things that we can see and experience and learn from the story of Harry Potter. It's just incredible. It is a reflection of the truth about our own world. And on a smaller note, I think, I mean, you could do a whole other podcast episode on this, in smaller doses or smaller themes, not really doses, smaller themes, you know, Harry Potter just shows the beauty of family, especially when you look at the Weasleys, it's just remarkable. It shows the necessity of friendship, right? Again and again, Harry tries to do it alone, but he just can't. And his friends stick by him, even though he's a fool, (laughs) even though he's dumb so many times, right? But friendship, camaraderie, counsel is necessary. You can't go at it alone. And again, taking this notion of taking on a task or a duty, even when it's not fair and you don't fully understand. A lot of Deathly Hollows is Harry really struggling with this. He's been given a task. He doesn't know how to do it. He doesn't really know why he's been chosen. He doesn't fully understand why he's been chosen for this. He doesn't know why Dumbledore didn't give him more detail. Like, he, there's so much mystery and confusion, but he knows that it is his task to destroy the, the, um, the Horcruxes. That's what he's been given. And so he's willing to have faith that this is a thing he needs to do. And he just, he goes after it and he does it despite all of his doubts and all of his fears. And the fact that it really isn't fair that it's been put on this, you know, 17 year old boy's shoulders, but he does it anyways. And that is an incredible thing to have faith in the task that you've been given and to keep putting one foot forward, even when there's mystery, even when you don't fully understand, but being dedicated and willing to finish the task, to fight for the duty that you have been given. And then, like I said, it definitely does grapple with and deal with prejudice and how we interact with people who are different than we are. But what I think is incredible is Rowling's answer to, is her answer to this is that it's really always resolved through friendship. You know, like, the overcoming this notion of muggle-borns being, are they, you know, mudbloods, right? They're not, they don't have the pure blood of just wizard family lines. It is the friendship between Harry and Ron and Hermione that overcomes that and makes it just not even matter. It's just null and void. Of course, she has a different experience than the people who grew up in wizarding families, and that's cool that they can share those things. I mean, you see Mr. Weasley getting really excited about all the things that her parents know and do, especially that they're dentists, and he loves learning about all of these things, but we see that it is friendship that bridges that divide. It's not some sort of, it's just nothing else besides friendship and deep, powerful love that allows them to overcome these small differences and see each other for the individuals that they really are. And so I think Rowling's answer to that is really cool and something really to look at and reflect over and just fantastic. So those are the thoughts, brief thoughts on the series of Harry Potter. It will always have a special place in my heart just because of my childhood and the way that it has spoken to me so many times over the years and just been a safe place that I can always return to again and again. But I think more than that, obviously, it is so well-known and famous and popular. I mean, to this day, I walk into bookstores and I don't just see the books there, but, you know, you have whole rows of puzzles and games and toys and all these kind of Legos and all that sort of stuff. Um, but I think really Harry Potter resonates with the human experience and it reflects the true story of the world. And that's what makes it a great story that I think will last. And it's a great story that I think we all need to be reading. And I feel like we as believers especially will enjoy and appreciate 
and find hope and encouragement from. So go forth. If you haven't read the book, read it. If you have read it, go reread it. Enjoy this just remarkable, lovely story. And as you do so, maybe enjoy some of Kylan's music in the background. And I will talk to you all later. Farewell. Sometimes love is loud. I'm not.